Today is August 31st, 2020, and this is episode number 23. Unfortunately, a disturbing and eye-opening episode number 23 of Blurred Laws and Life. On today's show, we have Brian Leslie. Brian is a former chief of police who is the preeminent expert on coercive police interrogations and usually testifies on the side of the defense who are attempting to establish that a confession was wrongly obtained. I discuss in the interview with Brian at the beginning his techniques for determining whether a witness is telling the truth or not telling the truth in an interrogation. But then we get to, in the interview, as you will hear, the more pressing issues of the day. His view on racism in the police ranks, his view on the George Floyd and Jacob Blake situation, his view on wrongful interrogation techniques that are employed on a daily basis in police forces throughout the country and the rampant problem we currently have in this country as a result. I will not say that this interview was eye-opening to me, but coming from Brian with all that's going on in the world, um, it is now apparent even more so of the problem that we have. And Brian's interview today is particularly relevant for Blurred Laws in Life, of course, because he testifies on a routine basis, hundreds if not thousands of times in courts across the country about these problems and issues in the attempt to show that confessions were wrongfully obtained. Um, He also will explain to us the telltale signs of when someone is um, not telling the truth. So this is a very special And unfortunately, I think to many of you, including myself, an unfortunate indictment on what is currently going on in this country. So I think you will find this interview fascinating and it will be well worth your time on Blurred Laws in Life. Before I get to the interview of Brian Leslie, however, I want to dedicate this episode of Blurred Laws and Life to my mother. As you may have heard in prior episodes of Blurred Laws and Life, my mom has Alzheimer's and it has progressed um, very rapidly now, but this past weekend was her birthday and I'm not sure that she will be here next year. And even though she cannot listen to this program, I nonetheless want to dedicate this episode of Blurred Laws and Life to her. And I would like to tell you a couple of stories about my mom. As I believe I mentioned on prior episodes of Blurred Laws and Life, um, my mother and father had me later in life I was a mistake, actually. My brother and sister are 16 and I believe 14 years older than I am. My mother often told me that she knew the exact 
moment of conception. And when I asked her why, she said it was the only time. And as I've also told you all, my uh, dad died when I was very young. And my mother and I were kind of stuck in this neighborhood in Miami known as uh, Carroll City, where we were pretty much the only white family in the neighborhood. And um, it was pretty much my mom and I against the world. She did not drive. So we had to walk wherever we went. We had to walk to the grocery store. We had to walk whenever we wanted to go to a mall. We would walk to the nearest bus stop. We took the bus wherever we went. By the time I was 10 or 11 years old, I had memorized the entire bus system of the city of Miami. But the thing was, I never felt like I was deprived ever. I always wanted more for my life. Um, I always knew that I didn't want to ride the bus when I grew up and that I wanted to be successful, but I never felt deprived. And that's because um, I always knew that I had my, my mother's love. After my dad died, my mom was going through a really tough period and um, I was always trying to cheer her up. And she loved the comedian Steve Martin. And I had all of Steve Martin's albums. I had memorized all of his bits. And um, she thought he was very funny. And so um, to cheer her up, she would often ask me to perform um, one of the Steve Martin bits for her. Um, I would do them all for her. Um, But her favorite one was his little bit that where he talks about his mother and not his real mother. This would obviously be a fictional mother, but he would, his bit went like something like this. I'm so mad at my mother. She's 102 years old and she called me up yesterday and she wanted to borrow $10 for some food. And I said, Hey, I work for a living. But anyways, I give her the $10. I have my secretary put it down and um, set up a payment plan. And the other day, she calls me up and she tells me, I can't pay you back for a while. So I said, what is this bullshit? So anyways, I have her lugging my barbells up to the attic and working on my transmission. That was my mother's favorite little bit. Made her laugh every time. And I I still picture myself being a little boy, 10 or 11, at the front of her bed, doing those Steve Martin bits for her. One other great story I wanted to share with you all about my mom. My mom was the biggest Miami Dolphin fan in the world. Back in the day, fans of the Dolphins used to bring white handkerchiefs and wave them during the games. And my mom had one at the house that she would wave during the game. And every Sunday, we would sit in her room and if the Dolphins were at home and the game was not sold out, and back then the rule was if a football game, home game, was not sold out within 72 hours of kickoff, it was blacked out on television and you had to listen to it on the radio. And so we would either listen to the games on the radio or we would sit in her bedroom and watch the games on a little black and white television. She would sit in this little rocking chair that was next to her bed and she was very superstitious So once the game started, she would not get out of that rocking chair. Or if it was a very tense moment, she would literally go in the bathroom and hide during the game. I remember this vividly. The Dolphins had won two Super Bowls, and they were in the playoffs in the following year. 
And the best three players on the Dolphins team, Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and Paul Warfield, had signed with the World Football League. So that would be for the next year. And everyone knew the Dolphin dynasty was about to come to an end. And in the playoff game, they were playing the Oakland Raiders. And it was what they call the Sea of Hands game, where um, Ken Stabler threw a last-second touchdown pass to Clarence Davis. My mother and I were watching that game in her bedroom as usual, and it was really tense. And um, the Dolphins were down, and they were driving. And I remember it was like yesterday. I was five years old, and I remember this like it was literally yesterday. Benny Malone, a running back for the Miami Dolphins, took the ball and did a terrific run, an amazing run, broke tackles with like two minutes left in the game and scored a touchdown so the Dolphins went ahead. I remember this again like it was yesterday. My mother and I looked at each other and we both said, too soon, too much time left on the clock. We both knew it. And she literally went into the bathroom and hid as Ken Stabler drove the ball down the field and my mom was asking me for updates. And of course, we all know that the game ended on the last play of the game with Ken Stabler falling down and the ball being caught by Clarence Davis with like five Miami Dolphins defenders around him. But somehow the ball got through and he caught them. And my mother and I were devastated. So just want to pass that story on to everyone because I remember that as vividly as if it were yesterday. I thought about this other story that I wanted to also tell you about. When my mom and I would go to New York from time to time, she wouldn't fly, so we had to take the train all the way from Miami to New York. She had a fear of flying, so we always took the train to visit her mom, who lived in Brooklyn. And I remember um, very vividly that once we were in New York and we were in a taxi cab and the taxi cab driver was not very nice to us. And I remember when we got out of the taxi cab, my mother, I think the fare was like maybe $10 or something. And my mother gave him $20 and told him to keep the change. And I was shocked because of course we didn't have much money. And I said to her, why did you give him such a big tip? He wasn't very nice to us. And she said, you never know what problems people are having in their everyday lives. And he may be going through a rough time or having a bad day. So your dad, you know, was a cab driver and you just have to understand that life is hard for people and you can't judge people by how they behave because you don't know what they're going through. And of course, I've always remembered that as well. So that was a great life lesson for me. But the one story that I wanted to particularly tell you all, which stays with me to this very day and shows who my mother is and was, was soon after I graduated law school. As I mentioned, I worked for a federal judge for a year before I joined my law firm in Nashville, Tennessee. And my mother came up to visit me shortly after I joined the law firm. I was 25 years old at the time. And the law firm belonged to these um, business clubs where you would have lunch and you'd have a membership. I think it was called the Cumberland Club or the City Club. And I took my mom to lunch there. And these 
clubs had older waiters. It must have been a 60-year-old waiter, 65 years old. He was an older gentleman waiting on us. And for some reason that day, the service wasn't good or the food wasn't good or there was something wrong. And I was kind of giving the waiter some shit about it. And after he walked away, after I kind of acted like an ass, um, my mother looked at me and she said to me, and I'll never forget it. She said, so you're a big shot now. And I just looked at her and she said, is that what you are? You're a big shot. You think you're a big shot just because you graduated from law school and you're wearing a suit. You're not better than any of these people. And don't ever let me hear you talk to anyone that way again. And I just looked at her and I said, I won't. And I thanked her for that because that was important. And that shows the kind of person she is. And that has stayed with me my entire life. And so, as I said, this past weekend was my mom's birthday. So this is for my mom. And I love you, mom. And I miss you very much. And now let's get on with episode number 23 of Blurred Laws and Life and Brian Leslie. Okay, so now I have on Blurred Laws in Life, Brian Leslie. Hi, Brian. How are you? Hi, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Thank you very much for being on the show. Brian, could you please just begin, if you wouldn't mind, with some of your background so that uh, the audience knows you know, who you are and, and um, what your expertise is? Okay. Um, I'm a former chief of police. I have 15 years of law enforcement experience. The, when I left law enforcement, I began looking at um, interrogations for coercive methods. I myself have conducted well over 2,000 interviews and, and interrogations in my time. And during my police career, I've written several, a lot based on, uh, I had several methodologies which I used, but I'll get into that in a minute. But my background is basically now I'm a coercive interrogation expert. I'm nationally recognized. I basically look at interrogations that were done by law enforcement today, and I look at specific elements of it, whether or not it met the criteria for an interrogation to begin with, what coercive methods were used inside the interrogation room, whether that individual more than likely or probability of that person providing a confession that was, um, that was a false confession. And I also look at the underlying statements and of witnesses and victims that made allegations and that supported the DA's case that's before the court. So that's very interesting. When you say coercive methods, what do you mean by that? That sounds pretty broad. And Yeah, so a lot of situations where people say, well, okay, there's an interrogation going on. First of all, the coercive elements in an interrogation are such things, for example, uh, narrative integration, narrative traps word integration, uh, minimization, minimizing environments, maximization. Uh, and basically that's all targeted on whether or not a person was vulnerable. And vulnerability can be anything from a blackout confession type statement where the person's a drug user, an alcoholic, 
and the interrogator basically targets that vulnerability and sets the narrative uh, for the possibility of being able to use that as an edge to get that individual to admit to a crime. And so, for example, narrative integration would be where uh, an interviewer integrates a specific narrative or questions that are more favorable to the interviewer's objective, um, such as feeding words or phrases. Uh, narrative traps are where the question or series of questions that are asked are constructed in such a way that the interviewer, that the context of the purpose may not be understood completely by the suspect who provides an answer that may later be incriminating. You see a lot of that in such cases as uh, baby death cases where you've got a husband-wife uh, at home and the investigators come over because perhaps the child died of unknown causes in the is a crib death or something like that. And the first thing that the family wants to do or the, the husband and wife want to do is assist the police in the investigation. So what occurs, and I've done many of these, what occurs a lot of the time it starts off to be just a regular Q&A. They're treated like they're witnesses, not like they're persons of interest. They're brought into the interview room. And at the beginning of the interview, it starts off very fact-finding and ends up in a situation where it becomes basically accusatory. For example, they'll start using words like, in like say, for instance, they're trying to create a narration or create a narrative of a shaken baby. They'll say, well, did you, and this is one of the cases I had, but where they had to take the child to, they, they babysat a couple of other kids in their house. and They ran to the sink while the child was vomiting from an unknown um, ailment the child had. And right away, the interviewer started saying, well, when you were running to the sink, did you uh, happen to shake the baby in any way? And the answer was, well, not not that I know of, but maybe. And then it was, well, you didn't shake him any more than five times. Then it was 10 times. Then it was, well, no more than 15 times at about a three-hour interview. So by that particular time, they were creating a, a narrative of the shaken baby syndrome, which later on was the child, they were charged and uh, acquitted eventually. But Nevertheless, that's kind of where the um, narrative integration comes in. Can I stop you? So when you? So when you talk about coercive, you're not talking about physical coercive. You're not talking about waterboarding, that no, kind of stuff. You're talking, when you're talking about physical coercive methods, that's from called what's known as the third degree. That was before the, uh, the read technique came in, and that was more of a psychological element to avoid any type of physical harm. Now, I'm not saying that physical harm. I still see cases where there's, um, there's lots of signs of physical ailments and abuse that was used in an interrogation room. It's fairly rare. Now it's not as, not as prominent as it was back in the 70s when the third degree kind of changed over to more of a psychological type of interrogation. So basically what you do, so that I understand it, what you do is you come in and say, this interrogation was unfair, it was coercive, it shouldn't be used because the techniques used are, are designed to create a confession that oftentimes may result in a false confession, something like that. Yes. Well, different than that a little bit because of the fact what I say when I'm going into these situations is I look at the interrogation. And coercive methods can't be just one question or two questions. It's the totality of what was, what was done in the interrogation room. So first of all, what I always look at is the underlying statements that were provided by witnesses and victims. It's very important because there's a standard that has to be met to even start an interrogation, and that's the presumption of guilt. It's a different standard than probable cause. 
the elements is the best way to understand that would be if you baked a cake, you put the icing on the top. But if you didn't bake the cake fully, but you still put the icing on, what would happen? It wouldn't, it wouldn't sit there well. So an investigation is the same thing. If you didn't cross your T's, dot your I's, and you didn't interview witnesses properly, and, and what happens with witness interviews as well, what I look for is course of methods used in witness interviews as well, which basically lends to a course of interrogation because if the person's not confessing right away, you'll see these interrogations go into six, seven, eight hours. And at that point, the reason why they're going into that is because number one, there is no physical, there is no supporting evidence that is that is overwhelming that the individual is going to say, yes, I understand you have this evidence. Yes, I did do it. It's because they didn't do it. And that's why they're, they're claiming their innocence right during the whole entire interrogation. But what happens in these interrogations is police culture is such that when they think that they know what the answers are, they will say to this individual, no, I need to hear the truth, not what you're telling me. Well, the truth may be what that person's saying, but it's not the officer's truth, what the, what the officer believes is the truth. That's where the problem starts. Well, we'll, we'll I want to talk to you about some of that because with all that's going on in the country right now with the Jacob Blake situation and the George Floyd situation, um, I'm glad I have you, a former police officer, on today because I, I kind of want to get your perspective on some of that. But before we do, I want to go back a little bit. As I was chatting with you before you came on, I mentioned that one of the things that I thought would be interesting to this audience, and I know would be interesting to me, would be to know whether you have developed techniques to detect whether an individual is telling the truth or not, and that we can apply in the practice of law as I'm examining a witness in a deposition or a trial. And you mentioned that you actually developed a formula or a technique that is sort of along those lines. So I'd like to hear a little bit about that, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. In fact, I've actually, when I was chief of police, I actually tested it against the polygraph and it stood above the polygraph in my research. Now, what happens is called reaction analysis profiling. And what I used to do, and one of my, I used to use it mainly on witnesses because I, for the most part, I wanted to vet witnesses better. I didn't like the idea of that witnesses could pretty much say anything that they wanted and there was very little vetting. And so somebody may be accused of something by a witness that didn't didn't pass the credibility test. So what I did was I created a body language element, which was patterning of body language. Now, what I do when I look at, and I've proven it, I'll explain how I proved it before, at the end, but what I do is I, when I'm looking at an individual, and I've, I've done testing where I've asked 45 questions of an individual. Now, in each question, it's videotaped. So what I'm looking for at the end is the movement of the head, the mouth, and basically the head tilt. Those are the things that um, I look at. Now, all three of those, when they're patterned together, you, here's how you would do the examination. You would ask five questions that you know are the truth, five questions that are subjective, um, and usually subjective questions would be something that they want to tell you a little bit of the truth, but you know they're going to hold back because it's embarrassing, such as a sexual question, perhaps you know, uh, sexual preference or something like that, where they may or may not tell the truth, but maybe partially. And then you make your notes on that. And then four questions or three questions that are going to be, you know, non-factual, such as, you know, they're going to lie about. And so you create these and construct these questions ahead of time. And so what you do at that point 
is you then look at and you've developed what's known as the baseline. So you do baseline patterning. And so when you're looking at the baseline of the individual, that's his DNA. That's his tell. That's what this individual is going to be unique to him. This, a lot of individuals say, well, if you look up to the right, it means this. It looks up to the left, it means that. Absolutely not. It could, but you have to pattern to get a proper um, tell from the individual to know whether they're deceptive. And you can use it for other purposes, too, um, whether or not they're even um, doing other things or there's other things you're trying to get out of an interview. But this is how you, you have to do it. You have to pattern it. And so I used to do this with witnesses quite uh, a bit. And I, in fact, um, I've done it on witnesses that I've then sent when I was chief. I could do it because you wouldn't be able to do it now that witnesses usually don't go on polygraph. Um, but I had witnesses that would, on serious cases, that would sign off and say, yeah, I'll take a polygraph, no problem, after they've given me a 40-page statement or a 20-page statement of what occurred. And I remember on one occasion that uh, the individual went in to the polygraph unit and they were being interviewed and the polygraph unit calls me back later on about four or five hours and they said, um, this individual is totally telling the truth. I said, what was the what was the reading on the polygraph? And they said, well, the polygraph is showing that there uh, that it wasn't working at the time. So I said, I need a polygraph done. So I, I'll wait till the machine is working and the instrument's working. And then I got him to go the next day, or it was a she. And she walked in. They called me about three hours later. Uh, Chief, uh, she was totally lying. We've, uh, we told her that she'd passed, but she actually came clean on everything. So that was, I already knew this from what I had already done because I was, I, at that time, I was developing the methodology, but that's how I developed it. And then I've done many tests on it in different, and what I used to do, particularly um, when I was doing developing and testing of it, was I would do, I would have somebody else inter, uh, do the interview with the video running. And then what I would do is I would take three shots at the beginning of the statement, the middle of the statement, and the end of each question. And then I would print them out, and I'd put them on the floor, 45 questions. Similar questions, if you take the exact headshot of that individual in those three positions, you put them together on similar questions, and they're almost identical. The mouth's the same way, the eyes are exactly the same, and so is the head tilt. So let me just interrupt you for one second, because I just want to understand something you said, because I want to test this the next time I'm examining somebody. Explain to me this head tilt and the mouth and the eyes and what you believe is the tell, the preeminent tell that tells you for sure the witness is lying. Well, what you're going to do is you're going to ask specific questions. Subjective questions. What I said before. No, I got that. Asking, I got that. Uh, I, I got that setting up. Yeah, but, but I got that whole part about setting in those up. in those interviews, and then when you put them together, this is this is the person's tells. So when when you look at the deceptive portions of that, where they've actually um, lied, you'll see those tells specifically. If that's what you're looking for. What are those tells? So what exactly go, are those tells? Well, it, it's unique to the individual. It'll be unique to every individual. Will have a different tell. And how do you know? But how do you know? As since everyone's different, how do you know that it's a tell? Because they're they're doing something different when they answer those questions versus how they answered the other questions. Is that what it is? Yeah. No. So what you're doing? Each individual, you're going to ask them five questions of truth, five questions subjective, and three questions that are you know they're going to lie about. You've already constructed these questions prior to the three questions that they lie about. That's what the tell is. 
So if you want to find a deceptive person, those are the tells right there. So when you get, what I'm trying to understand, which I'm not getting completely is when you've done your five and you've done your five and then you get to the three where the witness is, you know, going to lie, what are you specifically looking for? What is it that's different about the way he or she answers that question versus the prior questions that tells you, in fact, they are lying? Exactly. So what you would do is you didn't take the three questions that were a lie. You would take the head tells at the beginning, the positioning at the beginning, the middle, and the end, and you would take them on all three questions, and you would see the similarities of those exact questions of exactly where their eyes were, what their head tilt was, and exactly where their mouth was. And then when you're doing the interview, you would then, the actual interview where you're asking them specific questions, you're looking for those specific tells that are unique to that individual. Oh, I see. I see. So what you're saying, so let me see if I can repeat that back to you in a way that I now understand it. The three questions that you know they're going to lie about are not the questions of, did you murder X? These are just three questions you know they're going to lie about. And then what you're going to do is compare their body language from those three answers to their body language when they're answering the key crucial questions. Exactly. And Got so it those now. are the five, five, and three are your pre-interview questions that you're going to ask to establish the DNA, so, so to speak, the uh, deceptive DNA. Interesting. I see now. Okay, that makes sense. Now, what are are you usually hired? And, and I want to talk to you about general police techniques because something you said a moment ago is very interesting to me with all that's going on in the world, having you on a former chief of police is, you know, is invaluable. Um, I have so many different questions for you, probably beyond what you thought you were going to get today. Um, cause I know you are a top expert in this field. Are you usually hired on the police side to support the propriety of the interview? Or are you usually hired on the defense side to show why the interview was not proper. Yeah, I'm usually hired by the defense. Uh, not that I'm not open for the prosecution, um, because I've always made myself available. In fact, I'm I'm actually um, educating more police agencies now about the fact that you know you should bring somebody like myself in when you do get challenged in suppression hearings, because there's a lot of good interrogations out there and confessions that are being challenged that shouldn't be challenged, and so. But I always leave myself open for that. But unfortunately, one of the things is, is I get I get hired by defense cases mostly. And prior to me even coming on to the case, what I usually do is I'll do I'll look at the interrogations. I'll, I'll provide a report, and at that particular time, then they can decide if they want to bring me in uh, to testify. So that's how it's usually done. And my reports are very detailed. They're usually between 30 and 55, 60 pages. In some cases, I've had them as high as 180 pages. That's how detailed they are. Um, and more specifically, the longer the interrogation, obviously, the more elements there's going to be, whether or not it was coercive in nature. And what I get asked on the stand all the time is, and I make a point of saying this, is, is coercive interrogation, how does it reflect on the officers? Well, there's no misconduct necessarily with coercive interrogation methods. It's really just a totality of the use of certain types of methods. They may not have the, in their mind, they may not have the idea that what they're doing is wrong or even coercive in nature. Most, and most interviewers 
very seldomly do I ever see situations where they are using techniques that are knowingly toxic. Um, a lot of the time they're trained in a certain way. They, they overstep those boundaries. They see this individual as somebody that uh, is more vulnerable, so they're tapping into that more so, um, where they need, to, they need to have balance in it. For example, if you have a vulnerable person, establish at the beginning of the interrogation what exactly this person's vulnerability is. And this person may not even have a, you know, a low IQ. He may have a, a mental deficiency. Establish those and deal with them in the beginning of the interview before going in because once they get into that interview, almost 100% of the time when these types of things exist in the, in the vulnerability side where the individual is using um, techniques to tap into this individual's vulnerability. A good example of that, and I always use this one because this one is, is so common, is the blackout confession. person's a, an alcoholic, a drug user. They start off the interview by the interviewer going in to the interview room, having a conversation with this individual. He talks about, well, when I was a kid, we used to do this. We used to get drunk, and this is the officer talking, and he's just making a lot of this stuff up half the time anyway. In fact, there's books published on this um, to use types of stories. Um, for example, and then he'll go in and say to the individual, so you must have had a few of these types of situations where you, you party a lot and you black out. Oh, yeah, yeah, I black out all the time when, when I party a lot hard. And then they laugh about it. They build a rapport. And then the suggestion in about an hour and a half after doing that, this individual now trusts the officer, and it's a false uh, trust because the officer has, doesn't have his back at all, which he believes he does. And so he'll say, well, perhaps you, you, the officer will say to him, perhaps you did this while you were blacked out. Perhaps you just don't remember it. Well, I don't know about that. And then they'll start talking for a little bit. And within an hour, you'll see them saying, well, you may be right. Maybe I did. Maybe I just don't remember. And then all of a sudden the minimizations will come in, which means they're minimizing the crimes. I hear, hear this a lot. You know, um, well, this uh, murder's up here. What you did is way down there. They minimize it. They how can this happen? Say, well, I don't want to. I don't interrupt you again. But how can this happen with a lawyer present? I mean, these are people who obviously waive the right to have a lawyer present. Yep, that's you know, and and I'm asked by attorneys all the time. How does my client, after I told them not to go in the interview room or in the interrogation, do not be interviewed by police? Why do they go in and do that? People have a natural instinct to go in and try to clear themselves. They have no idea that when they're walking in that room, they're going to tell what they believe is the truth. And they're going to think that the officer is going to buy it and that they can clear themselves. This is something that is just, uh, it's natural. It's nothing that you can't, even if you tell your client, don't go into this interview room. Do not talk to police. Please have a way of convincing individuals that what just talking to them isn't going to get them in any problem. And I have uh, attorneys that actually, and I always tell them you should never do this, is send their clients to a friendly polygraph to clear them. And I tell them, no, don't do that. And the reason why, because most polygraph operators are former officers. And because of police culture, what happens with officers is they believe the brotherhood and everything else, and they believe that this person was probably guilty. And so they'll construct questions. And if you look at polygraph questions, the 
Polygraph questions, for example, in the military, they do this all the time. And one of the things that you'll get in a polygraph, and I see it a lot in the civilian world as well, but in the polygraph, because they're not admissible in court, but the post-interrogation is, because what they want to do is believe that the person was dishonest or was deceptive. So they have to show deception to the individual so that he starts talking. So they put questions out there. For example, a good example of a question would be, have you ever had an unnatural thought, um, a sexual thought in the last two years? Well, no one, this comes down to the subjective question. No one is going to answer that without coming up as deceptive. They're going to answer it to try to not be embarrassed. And so it's going to come up as deceptive. That's what they're looking to do because now they'll say to the individual, look, you are showing deception. See, I'll show you the graph. See here, here's where you're deceptive. This individual doesn't know that that question was set up. It's a constructed question. Okay, it's a narrative trap. And what happens is that question is put in there specifically to show that they were deceptive. And so the, the inference is made then to this individual that other things you've said are not true, too. And that's done all the time. Okay. Um, with our time left, I want to get to a few topical um, things. And, and one thing that you said as well. Let me ask you a question first. One of my favorite television shows, police detective shows, is Bosch on Amazon Prime. Have you seen that show? No, no, I haven't. Okay. No, I, it's a great I show. Usually, a believe great... it or not, I don't watch a lot of detective shows. Well, I don't watch a lot of legal shows, so that's probably for the same reason. Okay, so here's a couple of things that I want to talk to you about. One thing that you said, it really bothered me um, about police culture with all that's going on in the world. So you said that there is the truth and then there's the police's truth. And sure. a, a person goes in telling their truth, but the police doesn't believe it because it's not the policeman's truth. And through their interrogation techniques, they try to get that person to get to their truth by continuing to ask questions in these coercive techniques. How, which, which I think would, you know, primarily affect in a disproportionate way, the lower class, you know, uneducated part of society, which is despicable to me. And so what I want to know is how much of a problem is that? How pervasive is that in police culture? It's a big problem. And one of the issues is ego. See, in the police culture, you have to understand something. Police culture, police believe, I'm not saying every one of them, but a general portion of them believe that they've been on the streets for years and years and that they know what they're doing. They don't want anybody to tell them what their job is. They believe that they are in, tuned into the criminal element. They believe that if they believe that Joe Blow is doing certain things, they're going to prove it. And they know their intuition is correct, or they believe their intuition is correct. And this may not be true at all, but they become married to the idea that this individual has committed certain crimes. Now, a good example of that is predisposition, where police go into, let's say, a domestic dispute. For instance, now, you go into a domestic dispute. I, I got to stop you. I got to stop you for a second. I got to stop you for a second because this really bothers me. I mean, we're not in Nazi Germany, right? We're not supposed to be in a society where it's a police state where people are routinely wrongly convicted and interrogated to get to whatever answer the interrogator wants, regardless of the truth. And I, you know, 
until very recently, maybe I was looking at things with, you know, rose-colored glasses here, but I didn't truly believe or understand, I should say, the pervasiveness of this problem. But if what you're telling me is true, then it only supports further what's going on in this country right now. Yes, and to kind of extend to that, let me, let me finish the story of, of, so you get a better idea. I use the uh, domestic dispute. An officer goes in, he's got personal distaste towards women being beaten by a man. Okay, let's say that they establish that. The officer has his personal distaste. He goes in there, no matter what that officer or what that man, let's say he comes in the, and the man is angry because the woman's accusing him of all sorts of things prior to them even arriving. And so instead of going in with a settled head, he's going to take the individual, they're going to separate the two of them, and he's going to talk to them. And now if this guy comes across as angry, as, um, you know, he's, and he may just be angry the fact that she made an allegation against him. Um, he's not going to see through what the truth is. He's going to see his actions as being um, combative. And right away, his ego is he's going to give him directions to sit down if this guy isn't cooperating because maybe he doesn't want to cooperate because he didn't do anything. But this individual now is going to be targeted by this officer, more than likely. I'm not saying in every case. If, if an officer isn't like that, good, because there's some that aren't, and that's great. But this individual may find himself in just for the sake of the fact that he was upset at the, at the time when the officer arrived, and he's targeted by that officer. And you see this all the time. When, when officers give commands to individuals, maybe their individual doesn't want to listen, and it speaks for itself. A de-escalation is something that is taught, but it's, it's not embedded in their psyche. So de-escalation... The officers that understand their communities, understand the people they're dealing with, they don't have this issue because if you understand the people in your community, you can go in. I used to do this all the time. I'd know everybody in my community. And so when I would go in, I would say, okay, Frank, whatever, I need you to sit down. We'll talk in a minute. I always went in purposely with a clear head. I didn't want to make any types of predisposition on anything that I walked into. And I was, I, it's, a, it's like going to the gym. You have to work at it every day. And even though what you're seeing may not be true. And so you may think it's something else, but doing proper investigatives called inductive investigative methods. And inductive investigative methods means that you vet the witness, you vet the victims, you vet the, uh, the information they provide, and you corroborate that information. If it can't be corroborated, then you're not going to trust that information to go forward. That's called inductive. Police officers generally do deductive, which means you accept only the information that is inculpatory in nature, that's for their benefit, and you disallow exculpatory. You don't interview exculpatory type evidence, or you don't, you don't want to bring it into the mix because it then puts a question mark on your investigation done all the time. And I talk about this in court all the time. All right, let me ask you a question, and I want your honest answer to this question. Not that you've given me dishonest answers before, but I want your frank answer to this question. Is it a problem in our police ranks that many police officers are uneducated and once they get a badge for the first time in their life, now they have some power and authority and therefore use it 
recklessly and too aggressively because they're kind of on a power trip? Yes. And it's not for every one of them, but, and here's the difference between, and you can spot the good ones and the bad ones. The, the good ones will understand. They'll, they'll have a conversation with you. When you approach an officer, you'll, he'll have a conversation. He'll want to have a one-to-one conversation, not a condescending conversation. These are the officers that have those kinds of conversations more than likely are going to be those that, that have that, what you call a power trip. But yes, there's a lot. I worked with a lot that had, um, there's, there's a lot that don't, but there's a lot that do. I mean, I've experienced it. I mean, specific examples don't really come to my mind right now, but I can tell you, I can remember one or two where uh, I lived in New York for a while. Literally, I was walking on the sidewalk and there might've been a parade and I wasn't paying attention and I might've like walked into the street for a second and this, you know, cop just starts screaming, get the F back, you know, starts screaming. Instead of like being just a gentleman and saying, hey, you know, you can't get in the street. Like just like yelling at me like I was the lowest form of filth he'd ever seen in his life just for like stepping onto a street where I shouldn't have been for one second. I mean, like that kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. And that's exactly what you're right about that. And that's the power trip, which, which basically officers some, and I'm not going to, I don't want to paint them all like that because you know, I myself was not that way. I also uh, worked with a lot of guys that were not that way, but we were not the majority. Okay. What I did in every day I worked was I would get out of my car when I was on patrol and I'd walk through the low end districts and things like that. I would always get to know the families. I'd know everybody. And I'd walk and I'd, they'd offer me coffee. Yeah, I've got nothing to do right now. I'll have a coffee and a chat with you. How's your kids doing? Oh, fine. You know, this is, and then when you do have a problem, they know you. They know that, yes, you may have to make an arrest, but you know what? They know you're going to treat them fairly. And there's a big difference. And that's a big job to do. Not sit in your car, not go out and hide you know, down the street and just watch and then attract, you know, then approach people like you're, the authority. Okay. There's a big difference between that. You should know, and I would challenge any officer that works in a district that has a lot of people in it that for even lower end income people that how many of these people do you know by name and how many people do you, of those do you talk to every day? I make a point. I don't want to be in the car. I want to be out on the road. I want to be walking around talking to these people. Now there's good officers that do that, but what's good about that's an investment you spend if you're in an area for four years, the beginning of that four years should be for two years, you're, you're getting to know your neighborhoods. That's what it should be. And 100%, if I was chief again in another department, one of the things I would say and I would implement immediately is any new recruit that comes in, part of their probationary period was you have to start a community program that's successful. You have to run it and manage it, and it has to be in an area where it has an effect. And if you can't do that, within a year and show that you've done that, you're not going to get past your probation. Okay. I have a few other very important questions for you. So I want to talk to you about both uh, George Floyd and Jacob Blake for a second. In the George Floyd case, when I saw the video of the police officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck for eight and a half minutes while he said he couldn't breathe, I said on this podcast that I felt that that was indefensible. In the last few days, the lawyer for that police officer um, publicly announced what their defense is going to be. And their defense is going to be that Mr. Floyd had drugs in his system, opioids in his system, 
and that he was saying he couldn't breathe before he was pinned, that supposedly there may be video of him walking and saying he couldn't breathe, and that he therefore died of natural causes. And my initial reaction to that is if you are a humane, sane individual and a man who is walking upright is saying, I can't breathe, then why in God's name would you pin him by the neck with your knee on his neck when he's in that condition? In other words, I don't see that as a valid defense. What are your thoughts? No, absolutely not. Here's my thought. The first thing that I looked at in that case was there's three officers there. End of story. There's three officers. Why do you have to have your knee on his neck when you've got three officers there? Exactly. The reason why you have multi-officers making an arrest, a lot of people think it's because you're intimidating the individual. That's not why. The more officers that you have making an arrest, the better because it, it protects the individual from getting hurt on the ground, and it also protects the officers. The larger amount of people you have that are not, like I say, beating him, but holding him, make it so that he can't move. And therefore, you don't need one officer trying to do that. You've got chokeholds being done. You've got people being beaten by, by clubs. You've got, uh, you know, tasers being used. Unnecessary if you have multi-officers on a case, on an event. Now this, you had three officers. I, in a kind of a strange way, I feel sorry for the two uh, young officers that were one or two days on the job. That was their supervisor. They, they really were in a bad situation there. And if anybody has an, as a defense, I mean, I'm not giving them an out at all. But the fact is, is that this was a supervisor, an officer that has years on the force, and he's doing this in front of them to show them that he's the, he, look how he controls things. This was an ego trip gone bad. Well, he's going to pay for it. Um, so that's Mr. Floyd. Thank you for that. Jacob Blake. How in the world do you justify shooting a man seven times in the back? I understand the defense might be they thought that he might be reaching into his car, with, but although he had three small children in the car, um, which, which kind of contradicts that. But even if you thought he might be reaching for you have like several officers there. You should be able to restrain yep. him and not shoot him once, in the back. Once again, once again, you saw a threat. You believe there was a threat. He shouldn't have even gotten near the car. Yep, exactly. With those amount of officers, you could have held him easily. Yep, that's what I said. You I... don't need to even hurt him. You could have just held him because the fact is you could have secured him you, and then determined whether or not there was a weapon in the car. Nobody had to get hurt at all. Even in fact, if they had to hold him and he was fighting with that many officers, you wouldn't have had that issue. Exactly. So what do we need? Do we need just complete police retraining? Do we have, do we, let me ask this, let me ask you like the million dollar question, the question that's on everybody's mind in this country right now. Do we have pervasive racism on police forces in this country? Oh, absolutely. There's without a doubt. And one of the issues that needs to be changed is the fact that people need to, okay, and, and I'm going to qualify this just, I'm not going to say the comment like that, but I'm going to qualify it. Number one, what happens with police officers, and it's tragic, because they become somewhat of a victim to this, but I'm not giving them an out by no means. They work in areas a lot of the time where they see the same people doing the same types of crime. And once again, I go back to my predisposition. They form a predisposition. 
Now, I'm going to make an, an example of what I'm talking about. If you walked into, let's say, a situation where you're dealing with a bank manager with a suit and he's at home and he calls saying that somebody had broken into his yard and maybe he's lying about the whole thing. Maybe he's trying to set his, his, his neighbor up. The officer that's taken the statement that's interviewing this individual, he automatically believes right away that this individual is telling the truth because he's wearing a suit. He's a white guy. He's standing there. He's, why would he lie? The fact is, if you use proper investigative methods, you would know if he was lying or not. But if, you're, if your mind doesn't let you believe that, you're not going to go there. But instead, it's easy. And, what I, and I'm going to say that probably I'm going to say 90% of my clients that I deal with, and I deal with the whole country, so I'm not just dealing with one area. They're of color. And I look at each one of these cases individually, and I say, how did you get to this point? And when I look at the investigation, how it was flawed, how it went down the wrong road, things that they could have changed, they would never have had this guy targeted to begin with. And ultimately, a lot of these cases get thrown out or they get, you know, and we and facts are facts. Stats alone show that that exonerations, you know, out of the out of so many that are freed from DNA also had false confessions. The problem is the problem is they have to be able to afford you. The problem is how many people can't afford you and are sitting in prisons because they've been wrongly convicted through these inter- Actually, coercive I'm interrogations. Paid the, I'm, I'm paid by the court quite a bit. Hmm. Okay. So, but not everybody finds you. Not everybody gets you. Not everybody, you know, has a good lawyer that can that knows what to do. I guess. Exactly. And I mean, a lot of my post cases that I deal with that do reach out to me after the fact, and I do get a lot, I probably get 11 a day um, that come to me or at least contact me through family members or whatever. Um, One of the things and I I make a point of when if I feel I can do something with it, fine. And there's a lot of times I don't even charge them. If I just finished a case two days ago, a guy served 38 years in jail. He was 17 when he was arrested. I looked at the some of the documents he had. Uh, it was a 10-hour interrogation. His mother wasn't allowed in the interrogation room. It was a department that I, I see all the time having this problem. And right away, you've got missing time frames. You've got, uh, you know, I said, I'll do this one on, on my, this one's freebie. This one's, I'll do this one for you. And, you know, I give him the report about 35 pages laying everything out that needs to be reinvestigated. And the fact is, hopefully, he'll go to the integrity unit. They may, may pick it up. I've had the integrity units. And, you know, thank God we have those because a lot of times in post cases, I had one in California where the integrity unit picked up my report. It's 140 pages long. I did, And I didn't charge the family either. And that's now going to – they're in the process of, of um, you know – uh, the investigation or reinvestigation, but it's support. My report is supporting everything that they're doing. So, um, it's probably going to get bounced, but, um, and the guy will probably be out, but he should be, should never have been charged in the first place. So last question for you. Um, how do we enact these police reforms that are necessary, vital, and that will allow this country to again, have respect and trust in the police force and not believe that it's a roving band of essentially criminals with badges who are racist and who are killing people without regard to whether they're innocent, guilty, or they're using excessive force. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you right now, there's a couple of things. First of all, one of the things that is 
every department knows. I don't care what department, what chief, what supervisor you are, you know who the bad officers are. But the difference is you also are friends with them for the most part. Your sergeants, your captains, people like that, you may have actually, if you're a 10-year veteran yourself, you're probably going to know these guys and have a good rapport with them. So they're always going to have your back. That's police culture. Um, you, in situations like this, though, as a chief, like I said before, one of the things, the only way this is going to change, the only way this is going to change is make it mandatory that officers have to have programs in lower income areas, areas of vulnerability, and that they are doing something in those areas and show they have to show results. Most officers won't stay in policing very long. Okay. Well, you know what? One thing that I just thought of as far as this racism, this show of power, this, you know, this power hungry mentality, I just happened to see something. This is clearly not in the same level as the George Floyd and the Jacob Blake situation, but I don't know if you saw this and I was all over the news, but after the Toronto Raptors uh, defeated the Golden State Warriors in the uh, playoffs last year in basketball, the president of the Raptors was walking to go on the court. He's an African-American guy. And there was a sheriff who like stopped him and literally, as he was trying to show him his credentials, shoved him like twice hard in the chest and was saying, get the F back, get the F off. He was saying, I'm the president of the Raptors. And he wouldn't even listen. He just kept, he literally physically assaulted him. And it's on video. Mm-hmm. But I remember that. Yeah. It's, it's, it I was shocking. I mean, I know that's not on the level of Jacob Blake and George Floyd and, and literally murder, but it just goes to show you the type of mentality that, you know, people have to deal with these days. It's crazy. And the, and the worst part is, and the, the fact that I see this with my cases all the time, and I'll have families that will reach out to me and they'll say, you know, my son, you know, he didn't do anything. You know, he's, he's been charged. He's got this. He's got that. Um, and I'll say, what's the crime your son committed was being of color? That's what your son committed. And from everything I can see in this case, that's exactly what happened. And they say, you know what? You get it. And yes, I do, because I deal with every state across the U.S. I deal with cases, and I I do hundreds of cases. Uh, Some of them I I have on my CV. Others, I I just give them a lot of advice and, uh, and connect them with the right people. But the fact is that most of these cases, by the time they get to me, they didn't have to be there. Well, I got to tell you, Brian, this has been an eye-opening, maybe not an eye-opening because my eyes were already pretty wide open, but this has been a, I have to say, a bit of a disturbing conversation because, you know, this is the United States of America. This is not a police state. And we are recruiting and hiring police officers that don't deserve to be police officers. And I hope that through these criminal prosecutions that certainly will take place, that it will be an eye-opening experience. What shocks me the most is that with the George Floyd situation, every police officer in the world should know at this point in time that they are being watched. And if they do anything, they risk criminal prosecution. And yet we have events that occur routinely, even in light of that knowledge, the Jacob Blake situation, those officers had to know that they would be recorded, that this would be, you know, that they were doing something that certainly put them in jeopardy, but they did it nonetheless, which to me goes to a complete lack of self-awareness and a complete, you know, understanding of 
society and what is going on in today's world. I, it, it's the fact that they would even do it knowing what that the spotlight is on them now is beyond shocking to me. Yeah, no, and it is, but you know what? It's just coming out of the, it's just coming out of the dark room right now. It's just what people are starting to see what's been going on for years, years. It's not just recently just happened in the last 10, 15, 20 years. This stuff has been going on and has been embarrassing for good officers to have these people out there to begin with. But back in the days, People didn't identify with that. People were supportive of the police department, and so they were encouraged to hire officers that virtually enforcement was the priority. Enforcement isn't the priority of policing. That's why they call it police service, not police enforcement. Well said. But you can take the service off of the cars because a lot of the time it isn't service. It's only service to a certain degree of people. Exactly. Well, Brian, thank you very much for being on Blurred Laws and Life. I would love to have you back on as things develop in these cases. And God forbid we have other things happen. I would love to have you back on to hear your perspective. Sure. I'd love to be there. Thank you very much, Brian, and have a great day. You too. 